1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verses 10 through 15 will be our passage tonight. We'll just kind of read it as we go. Um, Let's pray, and uh, we'll start in the text. Father, I pray for, I pray not just for me, but for all of your people that we would pay careful attention to what you tell us, and that we would think carefully about what your word means and the extent to which what we do lines up with it or doesn't, reflects accurately your teaching. And so I pray for your help to that end, that we would be faithful. There is so very much at stake. And I pray your help tonight in this time and in the life of these people that are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, we know that Paul started this church. We can read about that in Acts chapter number 18. He was there a year and a half, a long stretch for him to be in one place, second only to the three years he spent in Ephesus, as far as we know. Uh, The church at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians is about three years old. Um, So we would still probably place it in the church plant phase of things. Um. And, of course, one of the great differences between all the churches that we read about in the New Testament and churches that we are familiar with is that virtually everybody that was in the church in those days was we would now, what we would now call a first-generation Christian. Um, there were diligent, faithful Jewish homes, like Timothy's, where his mom taught him the scriptures and he learned the precepts of Judaism. But there were no people who had been raised in Bible-believing churches because these were the very first Bible-believing churches. And I say all that because Paul is not really cutting them much slack. Uh, Paul doesn't take an approach that is, look, you've only been saved three years, and you you guys are all new to this, and it's only natural that you're going to get the vast majority of things wrong. Paul's approach is... I just can't believe that you guys are stumbling along like this at this particular point in time that three years into your Christianity, you're still in love with the way the world thinks. And that worldly wisdom has brought great division to the church, which means that not everybody thinks that way, but there's enough of an influence in it and enough division in the church that it has caused some real problem. Some real problems. I made mention, I think, of this last week, but I thought I'd take just a second to read it because I got it in the mail uh, a little, a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, how appropriate for some of what we're, you know, what are the kind of things that Paul might take exception to? Introduce a little more wow. If movies have the power to make us laugh, move us to tears, provoke our thoughts, and leave us wide-eyed in wonder, Wouldn't it be great to have blanket legal permission to use them in church? This Christmas season, the church video license can empower your church to show movies and movie scenes in all areas of your ministry, from services and Sunday school to midweek groups and outreach events. For one simple annual fee, you can use movies to teach, inspire, captivate your congregation and local community as often as you want to. And if we perhaps don't really understand why that would be a problem, 
I think that in light of all that Paul has been talking about to this point in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, we should acknowledge that it would probably be a problem to him. That we have to go to something produced and generated by the world to get God's message to people. He would be aghast at such a notion. And that is, folks, I hope you understand on my part, not any critique of movies per se. Not all movies are equally good. Not all movies are equally bad. But movies as a methodology of engaging people to get them interested in things that they would not otherwise be interested in doesn't really line up with what the Scripture teaches. And uh, we're going to see that in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to see that in this passage. And we're going to see it soon enough in the book of Titus. That God knows what he wants to do. And God knows what his agenda for getting it done is. So anyway, back to the text uh, this evening. In verses 10 through 15, which we will again soon read, Paul is issuing a caution to all who are engaged in church building. And if I may just jump ahead a little bit, that means you. It certainly means me, but it also means you. So Paul is engaged with these people who are distorted in their viewpoint of the way God uses men so that they have concluded, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Peter. And Paul has argued to them, that that is a reflection of their carnality. They are just thinking like unsaved men. That the worker is not really anything. That God is everything. And that the worker's task is to proclaim God's word and to teach it. And it is God that gives the increase. With that as the context, right? Notice verse number 9, or verse number 10. I'm sorry, verse number 9. For we are laborers together with God. And he's talking there, he, he's kind of, he started with, of course, Paul and Apollos and, and Peter and Jesus. And he reduces that to two, Paul and Apollos. He will carry that over into 1 Corinthians 4. We are laborers together with God. And by that he means Apollos and I are laborers together with God. Not me and God are laborers and God and Apollos are laborers, but Me and Apollos are laborers together with the Lord. You, on the other hand, you are God's husbandry. You are God's cultivated field. And you are God's building. And that's the analogy that he will return to in verses 16 and 17. That you are God's building. And again, there's a lot of overlap there, folks, because pastors are part of God's building. They are part of the living stones. And church people, we'll prove this in just a little bit, are church builders, right? Church building is not just something that pastors do by assembling a large number of congregants. Church building is something that the church is doing, and it engages all of the people. And so in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, he has pointed out the unity, not the division, which he has been criticizing, but the unity of God's true workers, that they are laborers together with God, working to the same purpose, all working in God's field, all building towards one building. And now then comes this admonition. 
an admonition to all who would build. Verse number 10 and verse number 11. Paul begins as any good architect would by talking about the foundation, by laying the groundwork. Verse number 10, according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul begins, as any building begins, right, with the foundation. And Paul calls himself, in verse number 10, a wise master builder. And the Greek word, I'm just going to give you the Greek word. You'll see how we use it in English, but I'll just give it to you in Greek. Architecton. As an architecton. As an architect. As a skilled architect. I have laid a foundation. But you'll notice, folks, in verse number 10, that it is the grace of God that has made him a skilled architect. According to the grace of God given to me. Not my many years of experience in being a builder. Not my power and prestige as an apostle. But God has given me the grace to be a skilled foundation layer. This is what God has for me. Now I realize that this is not true of all of you, but I know that it is true of some of you, and my wife and I like to watch these kinds of shows. Imagine turning on your favorite home renovation show. Or imagine meeting your favorite home renovation hosts and asking them a technical question about building, and they tell you what to do, and you go, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. So Paul talks as a wise, highly skilled architect. He is not building a physical building, but the principles by illustration are the same. I have laid the foundation, verse number 10. And the foundation, verse number 11, is Jesus. There's no other foundation to the church that can be laid. I am the skilled master builder and I have laid the foundation which is Christ. Now, you don't need to turn to it. You can if you want. But let me read to you two verses, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. From the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 28 and verse number 16. Where does Paul get this idea? Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid. Christ Jesus Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Peter quotes that in 1 Peter 2, 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, Precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. 
So the foundation is Jesus. And Jesus himself said that a man who builds his house upon the rock is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. So the foundation of the church is, of course, Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, to write this, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. So Paul begins by pointing out that he has a foundation layer, that he did the work of the evangelist. And without going too far afield and without trying to cause any and all kinds of trouble, folks, an evangelist is not a man who travels from church to church and preaches. I know that's the way we think of them, and I know that's the way they think of themselves. But biblically, an evangelist is a man who goes where there is no gospel message and preaches the gospel. That is the only thing an evangelist in the New Testament ever does, is go someplace where there is no gospel and preach it. He is the evangelist, the gospel preacher. Go where there are no people, preach the gospel, the work of the evangelist. And this was what Paul did. It is one of the reasons that he didn't stay in places for lengthy periods of time like pastors do. He was a foundation layer. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 10. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Jumping down, if you would, for a moment to verse number 11. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid. Paul's not laying a new foundation. He's laying the foundation that God has laid. It's already laid. God said, Isaiah 28, 16, I'm going to lay the foundation. And Paul went in and preached. Here is the foundation that God has established. Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. And when people believe that, they constituted a church and they were off and running. But again, going back to verse number 10, Paul's task being the foundation layer Another, middle of verse number 10, another buildeth thereon. Another buildeth thereon. Not a different building. Others are building on the foundation that is laid. In Matthew 16, Jesus told the disciples that he would build his church. And again, without getting into all of the details and the discussion about what is meant there, I say unto thee, thou art Cephas, and upon this rock I will build my church. The most plausible explanation for what is going on there is that Jesus is going to build his church upon the profession that he is the rock. Not that Peter is the rock, 
but upon the profession that Jesus is the rock. The rock of this profession. Thou art the Christ. You are the Messiah. What Jesus doesn't say in Matthew 16 is that he's going to build that church through the labors of his people. How is Jesus going to build a church? He's going to build his church through the labors of his people. And so Paul was the foundation layer and others are building upon it. Now, who are the others? And now I'd like to ask you, if you would, we'll come back to 1 Corinthians. But let's take a moment and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And let's just start in verse number 7. But unto every one of us, now this is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, unto every one of us, all right, here you are, and unto every one of us, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We all have grace. It has all been measured out to us by our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Gracious gifts unto men. We'll come to what the purpose of those gifts is in a moment. Paul then brings in this thought. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended far up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some, right? He gave gifts unto men. We have the gift of Christ in verse number 7. He gave gifts unto men, verse number 8. What are those gifts? Verse number 11. Some of those gifts are officers. And he gave some apostles. And some prophets. And some evangelists. And some pastors and teachers. How is God going to build His church? He is going to build His church through the officers that He has established. First of all, does it end there? Right? Am, I, am I the Westwood Heights Baptist Church church builder? Does it end there? God has given to me a measure of grace. God has called me to be a pastor. And I am then the church builders, other build thereon. But obviously that is not the end of the progression, folks. Because if we return to Ephesians chapter 4, what is the point of the officers? Verse number 11. The officers have a purpose. For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying or the building of the body of Christ. Now, okay, so let me just, this is, we're not in Ephesians tonight, we're not trying to tackle this, but, but we need to learn to start to, we need to start to learn to think this way, folks, right? We have, we have very real ministries, right? We have, we have musical ministries and choir, and we have Sunday school teachers, and we have folks who help in the nursery, and we have folks who help in the youth department, And we have folks that just do a variety of things 
that greatly aid the body. And those are legitimate ministries. But when you read Ephesians, folks, all of those kinds of ministries, they're all going to one place. What The end result of anything that we do as a church needs to be this, the building of the body. And to that extent, folks, we are all church builders. We are all church builders. There's just no conceivable place, folks, to be a Sunday school teacher that isn't trying to build the body of Christ through the Sunday school class. There's no conceivable place for there to be a music ministry that doesn't have as the end result of the music ministry the edifying of the body of Christ. So Paul laid the foundation and others are building. Others are building. Back to 1 Corinthians 3 and verse number 10. Paul begins by talking about the foundation. There's only one foundation, Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Those are positional expressions, not not your water baptism. Those are physical expressions. Those are, I mean, uh, positional expressions. And so according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. And then he returns again at the end of verse 11 to the idea of who the foundation is, which is in Christ. Okay? But you get to the very end of verse number 10, folks. Right? So these things being true, Paul has laid the foundation, which is Christ. And everybody else is a church builder. Built carefully. 1 Corinthians 3.10 Let every man take heed how he buildeth. Let every man take heed how he buildeth. And that is because, folks, in verses 12 and 13 of who the building inspector is. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Why should we be very careful about church building? Because of who the building inspector is. Now for some of us folks, this really has a little more resonance than with others. I mean, we've, we've built a lot of buildings in Westwood Heights Baptist Church. When we built that last building, that wonderful multi-purpose building, even our architect, who was really a good architect and really a good guy, got his ears pinned back because the building inspector had made some notations in red on the plans that we did not follow. And so we have a door in the back corner and a sidewalk that runs down this side of the building. 
that we had to retrofit into the building because the inspector said, you need a door there, and we just didn't put it in. And we have that monstrosity of a, of a vent over there. You know, we have a $400 kitchen range and a $14,000 fire suppressing hood over it. Because the building inspector said, this is what you're going to do. Building inspectors really matter. So what Paul does in verse number 12, folks, and and this would be, I would just encourage you to think this way. Rather than try to think through what the dip between the difference is between gold, silver, and precious stones. Right? I mean, don't think that way. We we wouldn't talk that way. Don't think that way. Well, that some guy he's he's building in gold, but this guy over here is building in silver. And this that's not the point, right? Paul is using six words to describe two things. Actually, he's using six words to describe one thing. Fire resistance. That's all he's concerned about is fire resistance. Now again, if you go to the internet, if you go to the commentaries, there's lots of discussion about what he means by wood, hay, or gold, gold, silver, and precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. But I just don't think that he's trying to clue us in as to six levels of building. He's making this point. Some things can stand the fire, and some things can't. Do we think about, I mean, do we really think about this, folks? Do we really think about this? That every church is going to, in effect, be thrown into the fire And it's going to be evaluated by God's judgment fire. And only at that point in time will anybody have any real idea of what kind of church it was. This is what is being stated. Some things will endure the fire. Things like gold and silver and precious stones. You can put them in the heat And they will still be gold, silver, and precious stones. And some things will not endure the fire, like wood, hay, and stubble. You put them in the fire and you get ash. So the question then becomes, right? Because here's the admonition. Build carefully. Build something that can withstand the heat. Well, what can't withstand the heat? That's what I want to know. What can't withstand the heat? And I'm not going to go back and reread it all and repackage it, but let me just give you the points and give you the summary. Okay? Here's, here's what I would argue, because Paul hasn't just gone flying off the handle here in 1 Corinthians 3. He is talking about something in light of what he has already been talking about. So on this basis, right, what will not, what constitutes something like wood, hay, stubble? All right, on the basis of chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, trying to package the gospel of Christ in such a way as to minimize or avoid its offensiveness and cater to man's pride. 
Because Paul said the message of the cross is both God's wisdom and God's power. And it is specifically designed, folks, to crush our pride. No flesh glory in his presence. And I'm going to take the position that no flesh glories in his presence, not either as the one being saved or the one who is preaching the gospel to the one being saved. In other words, folks, if I'm not making myself clear, let me make myself as clear as I can. The fundamentalism in which I grew up that I love in so many ways and cherish in so many ways was nothing other than absolute and utterly worldly in the way it valued people and arranged their value on the basis of how many people you could win to Jesus, how many baptisms you could obtain, and how many people you could get in your building on any given Sunday. That is carnal worldliness doesn't mean that those people aren't genuinely saved. It means to rank ourselves as if there is some earthly ranking system that is generated by, the, in effect, the income we produce is a sure sign of success. Packaging the gospel in a way that minimizes its offensiveness. Now, again, Paul never went out of his way to be mean, or to be rude. But Paul told folks that they were sinners and they needed a savior. And that was the starting point. Secondly, on the basis of chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, trying to substitute human wisdom and human eloquence in the place of God's spirit and power. They will not come and listen to somebody teach them the Bible for an hour, but they will come and watch a movie for an hour. And we'll squeeze in a little Bible. And on the basis of chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, building what looks like God's church by magnifying human personality, energy, and giftedness. Look at me, ain't I great? So Paul begins by talking to them about the foundation, which is Christ. And every man is building on that foundation. And every believer is engaged in some level at building the body of Christ. And the pastor, of course, as an officer, has an important role in there. Right? For the work of the ministry, for the, right? My ministry is to proclaim God's word to you so that you may more effectively do your ministry. But all of our ministry together is church building. Church building. And all ministry then will ultimately be brought before, I mean, no disrespect, the great building inspector. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13, right? If any man build... And it's possible, folks, to build something on the foundation of Jesus Christ that when it hits the fire of God's judgment will come to be nothing. Build carefully because if you're not careful, you might build something that is wood, hay, and stubble. But every man's work, verse number 13, shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed 
by fire, through fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now what this really means, folks, right? This is one of the reasons I was so passionate in my argument that this idea of ranking pastors and churches on the basis of size and of converts and of baptisms, if 1 Corinthians 3.13 is true, folks, then doesn't this have to be true? We don't know yet. If, you don't, if we don't know until it goes to the fire, how do we know? God says nobody's going to know till it gets to the fire. And we go, this is the greatest church in the city. But we don't know. God has spoken. It's going to be the fire that reveals it And that word revealed is the word apocalypse. It will be revealed in the fire. It will be, folks, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It will be in the fire, but it won't be burning because it's gold, silver, and precious stone. That's the point. That's the picture. Not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown in the fire, and the fire revealed the sterling character that they had. So the fire of God's judgment will reveal what has been built. But until then, folks, we don't really know. We, we just don't know. So we build carefully. We don't, we don't, we don't build, to use our kind of language, we don't build for the optics of what can be seen today we, if, we're, if we're really wise, if we're, if we're listening to the master builder instruct us, right? we're trying to build something that will withstand the fire, not just something that will look good today. And the fire will put the work to the test of what sort it is, what kind of work it really was. And that brings me then finally to verses 14 and 15. Paul talks to them about the foundation And he talks to them about the one who will inspect the work. And he talks then finally about the fact that every individual worker has a tremendous vested interest in what he's saying. We reject this and dismiss this, folks, at our own peril. Listen, let the somberness of the words hit you. If any man's work abide, which he hath built, he shall receive a reward. I like rewards. I can be motivated by rewards. If the work abides, you get a reward. But, if any man's work shall be burned, It gets thrown into the fire and it is burned. And there's nothing but ashes. He shall suffer loss. And if you say, what does he lose? Uh, Folks, I just don't know any other way to put this. He loses everything but his soul. Because that's what Paul says. He loses everything but his soul. He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. 
because he didn't burn in the fire. We got a lot of skin in this game, folks. We got a lot of skin in this game. There, there is a lot at stake. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to be saved. Job said, saved by the skin of my teeth. But isn't it a better thing to be saved and be rewarded? And if we can't quite get our minds around when that will be, or how that will be, or what those rewards look like, Paul doesn't go into that. I'm not going to speculate onto that. My personal opinion is, is that he is talking about how it is going to work in the kingdom, because that seems to be where all the rewards and the absence of rewards is going to operate. But do we really have to have that, folks, when we have this? Build carefully. If what you build can stand the fire, you'll be rewarded. Well, God's not cheapskate. But if what you build burns, it's all ash and you lose everything. And God's not a liar. He doesn't make empty threats. So there is much, much, much at stake. And the, 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 the grammar emphasizes that you are the one who will be rewarded. The worker who builds what will not burn will be rewarded. I mean, it's just like this, folks. The opportunities in the labor of a lifetime gone up in a puff of smoke and no opportunity to, to, to remedy that. This is the judgment. Now again, how this will work, I don't know because when we get to that point in our existence, we will not be tainted with envy or egotism. We will not gloat. You know, I have a brother-in-law that I love dearly who just, you know, we would play all kinds of board games and he always, this was his, one of his favorite sayings, winning is nothing, gloating is everything. Right? And, but we will not gloat. There will be no place for gloating or bragging. So, I, I, you know, it's kind of hard to, to envision it in, in, in light of our carnality. But here is the clear command of God. You'll be rewarded if what you build can withstand the fire, but if it doesn't, it's all gone. Just you and your salvation standing there. So, right, we're all workers. We're all workers building God's church. Everybody has a part. I would argue that what we need to do is pay careful attention to the Scripture and build biblically. God is really not looking for people to get things done. God is looking for people who do the things he tells them to do. That's it. So I just want, I just want to try and do what I've been told to do. And, right, build for the fire. Just build for the fire. And certainly we want to make sure that we don't fall prey to worldly standards of building and success. Because we have been already forewarned that God does not think highly of that. And with that, I'm going to stop this evening. If you want to take your prayer bulletin out, is there anything? I'm very, I'm not.